0: Hello traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's Head of America's Oil Analysts. Today we're also joined by Stephen Donovan from Refinitiv's Calgary office. Jim, why don't you kick us off and give Stephen a proper introduction.
1: So, Stephen is part of Refinitiv's customer success organization, and he works directly with Refinitiv's energy customers across Canada. So, Stephen, what are you seeing in Canada?
2: Thanks, Jim. So, the effects of COVID 19 can be seen throughout the Canadian economy. And we'll start with unemployment, which hit 13.7% in May, an increase of 8.3% from it one year prior. Looking at Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland, which account for roughly 95 percent of Canada's oil production. We can see employment numbers spike in these provinces as well. Alberta unemployment hit 15.5 percent, Saskatchewan unemployment hit 12.5 percent, and Newfoundland unemployment hit 16.3 percent, all increasing from the same period one year ago. Looking specifically at the resource sector, we can see that 333,000 people were employed in Canada at the end of 2019. With unemployment rising across the board, we are likely to see these employment figures fall in 2020. And we are already seeing signs of this in Canada with job losses due to COVID-19. Enbridge, a Calgary-based pipeline company, recently offered buyouts to 800 employees with the goal of reducing costs. Ovintiv, formerly in Canada, which recently moved their headquarters from Calgary to Denver, also announced the reduction of their workforce by 25%. And the co-op refinery located in Regina recently announced that they would be laying off 100 employees. The challenges faced by these companies also mirror what we are seeing in equity markets in Canada. The TSX energy sector is down 32% year to date, and while Canadian stocks have rebounded since their lows, we are still seeing companies down more than 50%, with Husky and Synovus seeing their stock values down by 55 and 50% respectively. Despite the pressure on equities, there are some bright spots along the horizon. Oil sands production should increase in the coming months as turnarounds are completed throughout the summer. Syncrude, Curl, and the Christina Lake all had extended turnarounds, causing prolonged production cuts. Shut-in volumes are also expected to return if prices remain in the mid-30s. Break-even prices for Canadian producers range from the low 30s for CNRL to the mid 40s for companies like Meg Energy, which supports certain companies bringing back these production volumes. One sector that may not see a quick return is the rail sector. COVID 19 led to a drastic decrease in demand for oil, causing crude by rail shipments to hit 156,000 barrels per day in April, the lowest level since February 2019. And it is expected that these numbers will be lower once May figures are published. That said, narrowing differentials for Canadian crude could spark an increase in crude by rail shipments. WCS differentials have stayed largely in single figures since late April after spending the first three months of the year at a $12 to $24 differential relative to WTI. WCS at Hardesty is currently at around $30 a barrel while Canadian light sweet is roughly $35 a barrel. And with Saudi Aramco recently raising the prices for their heavy oil blends for July shipments by $3.90 to Europe and $5.60 to Asia, this should signal to the market that prices for heavy oil crudes should rise, a positive sign for Canadian energy producers.
0: Wow. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Um, We appreciate you bringing your insights today. Uh, Jim, what have you got working for us
1: stateside? So Canada, Great Britain, and the U.S. are in a very unique position in the energy world as they're the only major producing countries where the government does not own the oil in the ground. The huge benefit being that anyone can profit from oil, including foreign companies. The downside comes when tough times come to the oil patch, the damage to the economy becomes outweighed. So much of the figures that I'm going to go through today are from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis and a study commissioned by the American Petroleum Institute the API. 2015 was certainly a down year in the oil industry, but the API report estimates the oil and gas industry generated $1.1 trillion towards the U.S. GDP. Capital investment added another $220 billion to bring the total to the economy of $1.3 trillion. The U.S. GDP in 2015 was $18.2 trillion, So the oil patch contributed 7.1% of the total GDP. And this percentage remains today. So directly or indirectly, the energy business in the U.S. employs 10.5 million people out of a total labor force of 164.6 million people. So about 6.4% of the labor force. Oil industry average salary is about 102000 where the average salary in the US is just 55,000. Energy certainly affects all 50 states, but has a disproportionate effect on oil producing states. So can you guess which state has the largest percentage of employment in the energy business? Nope, that's number four. Oklahoma has 16.6% of the workforce employed directly or indirectly in energy. Wyoming is second at 14.4 percent, North Dakota 13.3 percent, and then Texas at 12.2. And rounding out the top five is Louisiana at 11 percent. In these states, energy has a disproportionate impact on the economy. From a financial perspective, the numbers are even more disproportionate. For example, the value add in the District of Columbia is a meager 1.7 percent, all the way up to Alaska, who relies on the oil patch for 28.9% of its GDP. And for what it's worth, here are the other top six. I already mentioned Alaska at 28.9, Oklahoma second at 27.3, Wyoming 22.7, North Dakota 21.1, Louisiana 20.7, and the Texas economy relies on the oil patch for 20.2% of its state's GDP. From the study done by the API, when we look at which industries have the largest percentage of investment, we know as capital expenditure, in the US, the oil and gas is the largest sector at 15.7% of all investment in the US. For some perspective, utilities invest about 8.6%, healthcare 6.3%, and transportation 5.3%. From a gross dollar amount, Oil and gas routinely spend in excess of $200 billion a year on America's infrastructure. Now, this isn't government $200 billion. These are corporations seeking profits. $200 billion is a mountain of money. From a tax standpoint, the oil and tax industry pays an effective rate around 34%, compared to 26.7% for other S&P industrial companies. So also from IRS statistics, the oil and natural gas industry repatriates over $100 billion a year from foreign operations. Obviously, this number changes every year, but what doesn't change is that in most years, that's 33% of all the earnings repatriated across all of the industries.
0: Wow, that's, that's very interesting. So, hey, Mexico has a big export economy. How does
1: oil stack up there? So there's many ways to look at the impact of the oil industry on a government. For Mexico, I'll look at two, money and employment. The Mexican economy is reliant on many industries, and oil is just one of them. The GDP of Mexico is about $1.3 trillion U.S. dollars. The oil industry is about 8% of that, or $1.4 billion. Mexican government revenue is in the neighborhood of $265 billion, with a bit less than $50 billion of that coming from the oil industry. So about 19% of the Mexican government's revenue. So 8% of the GDP creates 19% of the government revenue in Mexico. And that's the definition of punching above your weight class. The current trade account deficit currently sits at $21 billion which means Mexico has imported a running total of $21 billion more than they have exported. Oil exports against product imports in Mexico is adding about $4 billion a year to that deficit. But President Obrador is trying to change this. The Dos Bocas refinery alone will take care of most, if not all, of that $4 billion net account deficit per year. Along that same line, given the current oil development projections, and prices, by 2025, oil royalties are expected to be an extra $10 billion a year. Zama Oil, at its peak, is expected to contribute $3 billion of that. Another view on the size of the Mexican oil market in relation to its total economy is exports. 80% of the exports from Mexico come to the U.S. From a gross dollar perspective, vehicles account for 102 billion of that electric machinery and equipment 82 billion other machinery including computers 66 billion and oil about 23 billion so of these top 4 export categories oil accounts for 8.4% of mexican ex- exports the oil industry directly employs 130,000 workers and indirectly about 500,000 workers out of a total workforce of about 57 million people, impact sure, dominant number-wise, no. Salary-wise, oh yes. So here's some comparable salaries. A drill operator will make about 58,000 a year. That's U.S. dollars. A roustabout, who's a low-level worker who does kind of the dirty, difficult, and dangerous jobs on an oil rig, makes 41,000 dollars. These are substantially above the salaries of non-oil industry jobs. For example, truck drivers in Mexico on average make about $39,000. Farmers about 28000 Retail workers 27000 And food service 25000 So I would be remiss if I didn't mention the phenomena called resource curse. A lot of countries currently produce oil or used to produce oil and export it. The benefits for the economy of each of these countries have had very different outcomes. There's a book called The, Parado- the Paradox of the Plenty, Oil Booms and Petrol States by Terry Lynn Carl. She's a former Stanford professor. This is a pretty interesting read. She goes through some examples of how instant King Midas level wealth creates corruption, crushes the manufacturing sector, and greatly overvalues the currency of a country. Most of this problem comes from overestimating oil revenue and then trying to deal with the cyclical nature of the revenues. Guyana is currently poised on this cliff. Mexico has seemed to dodge that bullet as they have developed a large manufacturing sector with the oil sector being an adjunct to the manufacturing sector. Other Latin American and African countries have not been as forward thinking. So, Corey, what you got going on in South America?
0: Well, like many of you, I view the oil industry as being very interconnected. For example, even as the U.S. no longer relies on OPEC crude, it certainly is affected by the cartel's decisions that influence oil prices. With that, I realize that through these podcasts, I've spoken about just about every other South American country, including Uruguay, but have never touched on Chile. Chile is the only country in South America that is an OECD member. It's the 41st largest economy in the world, and its GDP grew 3.9% in 2018. It has a population approaching 19 million and is ranked economically more competitive than its South American brethren, Brazil and Argentina. But the reason I'm not speaking about Chile is, well, because it has essentially no crude oil production. I mean like two to 13,000 barrels a day. There's been some exploration in the Magallanes Basin that the country shares with Argentina, which holds over 2 billion barrels of oil. But producing there has not been a priority at all for the country. So, Chile is obviously very dependent on foreign sources for its energy needs. ENAP is Chile's national oil company and does participate in oil exploration and production internationally. It also controls the country's three domestic refineries, the collective capacity of which equals about 220,000 barrels a day. However, the refineries only operate at about 82 percent capacity on average, so aside from importing crude, the country also must import refined products to meet its 375,000 barrels per day demand. Chile really got out ahead of the coronavirus It provided support to its hospitals, it focused on testing, and a lockdown of its population. We did see an impact on crude imports, with 2019 averaging 165,000 barrels per day, and January through April 2020 crude imports averaging about 38,000, excuse me, 38,000 barrels per day less. However, we actually saw an increase in refined products imports. And In 2019, products imports averaged about 129,000 barrels a day, and January through April 2020 averaged about 140,000. Well, this uh, handling better than others scenario has come to an end. Some have blamed hasty reopening, but the simple fact is where other nations have seen some overall peaking in coronavirus cases, Chile is very much up and to the right. And now the virus has spread ever more to those lacking the means to fight it. It's now either the seventh or eighth most infected country in the world. But sticking to energy, this will obviously have an impact on Chile's demand. Second wave global virus resurgence notwithstanding, Chile would be behind on the reopening curve, and this will limit a traditional home for international barrels. On the product side, this is very much a U.S. issue, as historically the U.S. has supplied around 82% of Chile's import needs. On the crude side, Brazil and Ecuador have traditionally split about two-thirds of Chile's crude imports.
1: So you mentioned Brazil. I understand you have some theme-specific intel there today.
0: Absolutely. So Petrobras ended 2019 with, with uh, about $87 billion in debt. As part of its plan to reduce that debt, the company decided to focus on crude production and to sell off many of its non-core assets. And by assets, I mean refineries, specifically eight of the 13 refineries that the company controls um, within Brazil. Now, I've covered this before, but coronavirus hit Brazil hard and affected the oil industry in multiple ways, demand, supply, and sickening workers across several of Petrobras' offshore platforms. The virus spread, aside from crushing prices and impacting profitability, led to the company to take the refineries off the sales block. But despite once considering taking crude production off the market in the face of global demand destruction, Petrobras reversed course as it found a ready buyer in China. We've actually seen some peaking in virus cases there, despite all the rhetoric of Bolsonaro's gross COVID mismanagement. And with that peaking, a couple of things happen within Petrobras. First, it looks like the company may actually sell its Arlan refinery, the second largest in the country, at 323,000 barrels per day of capacity. And just as Jim and I spent a solid two podcasts talking about, China has shown interest, but so has Esser. It'll be interesting to see what happens here, but regardless, Petrobras may see some of its debt wiped in the books. Couple this with Petrobras's potential sale of its stake in fuel distribution and several production blocks, and I actually see legitimate progress of the company in reaching for its goal. But of course, I say this as several members of Brazil's Congress attempt to get an injunction to halt the sale of Petrobras's refineries. Second, very interesting to me as an energy company, uh, Petrobras sent almost all of its office staff home during the height of the pandemic, As indicated, it may have 50% or so of its administration stay home permanently. Uh, To me, this is one indication of a change in the structure of the way we work, and will certainly be echoed elsewhere, especially outside of the energy industry. Of course, following the leads of other large energy companies, uh, Petrobus has begun laying off around 20-22% of its 45,000-person workforce. It also seems as though Petrobras was, in a sense, not as scathed by the pandemic as one would expect. It and Brazil were obviously affected. but Throughout, Petrobras uh, has made strides to move towards its core business and reached an export high of crude in uh, in June, even as domestic refiners stepped up utilization and products' demand increased. I I see this path continuing as we emerge and see Brazil as a whole increasing crude production as it remains a steady supplier to China.
1: Oh, very interesting. Anything else this week?
0: Uh, yeah, a couple more things. So I've mentioned the crude production in Guyana starting up this year and refusing to be hampered by the pandemic and largely doing just that other than a technical issue in the Laza of platform. Now, here's a place that's a real study in how, even though even when we see global recession, we continue to have growth in, in some, some places. You know, Prior to the crude price collapse, the IMF put Guyana GDP growth at just over 85% this year. In recent years, growth has been under 5%, but even with so much in the way of demand destruction and price collapse, this new production will translate to just under 53% GDP growth in the country this year. Not bad, but you know, as you mentioned, um, kind of what Professor Carl had written in a book, we'll see how this really plays out there. Uh, but another thing here, Guyana has had a border dispute with Venezuela since 1899. This dispute has, the dispute has arisen in several different venues over the years. But it actually, has real implication as the, you know, the quote border stretches to the waters, and if, it, and if Venezuela manages to win, it could affect Guyana's newfound oil wealth. It seems unlikely that Venezuela would win, but the case is currently being heard by the UN's International Court of Justice. Uh, Venezuela objects to the IC, ICJ's jurisdiction, jurisdiction, so we'll have to see how this all plays out. Other than that, uh, for a country so dependent on oil revenues, and even in the face of crippling sanctions. Uh, Venezuela is expected to contract less economically in 2020 than it did in 2019. There's certainly more going on here, like the U.S. attempting to seize four tankers carrying gasoline to Venezuela and some relaxation of sanctions on shipping companies previously involved carrying Venezuelan crude. Uh, But those are things I'll have to monitor and get back to uh, you next next time. So, Jim, um, what do we have for next week?
1: Energy is an integral part of every economy in the Americas. Its impact to GDP and employment is substantial, but it doesn't dominate the economy or the workforce like some Middle Eastern countries. This balance leads itself to a more sustainable path forward. So next week, Corey and I will look at the shipping and the movement of oil and products around the Americas.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. So have a great week, everyone.